Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week, reviving a heritage brand, the story of Ridgard Seats. JECpodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you on Summer Jaguar Festival weekend. We're all very excited. I'm just about to pack my bag and get down to Bista Heritage to host the live stage for Sunday the 4th of July. Now, if you haven't got a ticket, I'm afraid you're not going to be able to join us. We are sold out to capacity, that capacity in place, of course, because we need to keep you safe. So it is a sold out event, a ticket only event. If you don't have a ticket, please don't come to Bista Heritage. Instead, look at some of our other events that we have on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club website under the events page. I'll tell you about a very special one at Harewood Hill Climb in just a moment. But for those of you that are coming to Bista Heritage for the Summer Jaguar Festival, a quick rundown of the schedule that we'll have for the live stage as we take this podcast on the road for the Summer Jaguar Festival. We'll be doing it live for you, starting at 10 to 10 on the Sunday morning, looking at what the day has to offer, giving you a preview of the show ahead. We'll be meeting some of the top sponsors from 10 and then with Peter Leake who was on this show at the beginning of the year we'll be talking about the XK8 and X-Type. Meet the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust is on at 11 where we'll have Tony Merigold and I looking through some of the cars that are out on track at Bista Heritage and then the man that saved Jaguar Sir John Egan in conversation on the live stage at the Summer Jaguar Festival that's at 11.30 SNG Barrett join us at half midday after some live music to look at the parade of Jaguars on track and then our headline act, Kevin McLeod, of course, the star of Channel 4's Grand Designs, joins us for a chat about cars and design at one o'clock. Get your sandwiches out, get yourself on the grass, pull up a deck chair and enjoy that. It's going to be really good. We had him here on the podcast back last year, actually, uh, during the height of the pandemic. So it's going to be great to meet him in person and also throw some of your questions at him as well. Also, our technical guru, David Marks, joins me to talk about 35 years since the XJ40 was announced by Jaguar. And then at half two, after some more live music, we'll be giving out the prizes for the Concours and Pride of Ownership competitions. The E-Type winner of our Concours de Elegance will be going on to compete at Salon Privé at Blenheim Palace in September, a really exclusive prize. Then we'll hear from the organising club's chairman Ray Sells from the JC and Roger Kemp from the JDC before a D-type and C-type shootout on track before the show closes at four. What do you reckon? Sound like a good day out? The Summer Jaguar Festival is upon us at last. We're going to be out enjoying Jaguars in person. However, if you didn't get a ticket to that, if you want to still be involved with a big national event this year, there is another one on for you in August when the JEC go to Harewood Hill Climb. Now, this is a heritage hill climb track in the UK. It's been running competitions since way back in the late 50s, and it's the longest hill climb track in the UK and you're going to be able to drive it as fast as you like. Not against the clock, but not restricted to speed at all. If 
you don't fancy getting out on track and you just want to have a leisurely day wandering around the cars meeting your friends and just generally being in the atmosphere you can join us as well and park your jaguar on the show field and watch the action from the relative safety of the paddock you can do all of that by booking online now at jc.org.uk forward slash events look for the jc at harewood hill climb event listing there and you can follow the links and book your ticket again because of covid it is pre-book only at this stage so make sure you get booking get yourself on the entry list for that event we'll also be having a celebratory cavalcade as well at the lunch break so if you want to get up on the hill climb if you want to experience the track but not too fast that's another opportunity and that'll be free to everyone who joins us it's going to take place on the 21st of August, the Saturday. And if you want to carry on and make a weekend of it, we'll have some route cards for you to enjoy local runs, or you can pop along to a breakfast meet at the Motorist near York the day after on Sunday morning as well. More details can be found at jc.org.uk. Now, on this episode, we're going to be talking to Sam Brown of Ridgard Seats, a brand that has been in motorsport since the early 1960s and has now been revived by sam herself they do lots of great motor racing seats and customized seats for jaguars as well and we'll talk to her after the hall of fame next motorsport heroes with richard west's hall of fame hall of fame we're back to formula one and someone very important in the history of formula one who finds his roots in motorsport from his very important to Jaguar's history father. We are talking about Patrick Head. Uh, Richard, this must be a character that you must have come across many times in the pit lane over the years. Well, yeah, he was actually one of my employers on two occasions uh, when I worked for Williams in 84 and then went back uh, at the end of 92 through 96. Patrick obviously was, um, was the senior figure in our design team at Williams Grand Prix Engineering Limited and of course he was the 30% shareholder that joined Sir Frank Williams when they formed the team in uh, in the mid to late 70s. I alluded to his father's history and um, I've seen Patrick Head in a number of interviews talk about the fact that he spent most of his childhood slung in the back of a Jag going to various motorsport venues across Europe, actually, and in particular Scandinavia. His dad, Michael Head, was a Jaguar driver, a privateer, and actually won at Goodwood, part of the Whitson Trophy in 1957. Do you get the feeling from him that he still has a very close affinity with Jaguar even now? Anything automotive and anything that is classical in terms of British engineering, manufacturing roots, then Patrick is a fan. I mean, he's one of the most patriotic people I've ever met. And being so outspoken, as only Patrick can be on occasions, um, he's never shy of letting people know his opinions on how great Britain is or was in the past. Uh, he's, he's, He's truly a very passionate individual. He loves his cars. He's very proud of his history and his time with, with Frank at Williams and all that they achieved together. And I think now, you know, in his later years, obviously, he's enjoying the, the fruits of his labours. Absolutely. He gets to drive all sorts of nice cars. And I remember just a few years ago, he was at Goodwood Revival driving Hot 95, which was the Cooper mm-hmm. Jaguar that his dad, Michael, won in at the Whitson Trophy in 1957. But that was to pave the way for a stunning career in motorsport. Where did it all begin for Patrick? 
Well, he was educated at Wellington College. I, I met a number of very successful people over the years that went through Wellington, and clearly it did bring a lot of talent together. Um, when he left school, he initially went into the Royal Navy, but that really was not for him. Um, so he decided that it was time to go off to university, which he did. Um, I believe he started in Birmingham, um, but he failed his first year exams. He graduated in, uh, in 1970 with a degree in mechanical engineering, and he was another one. He went to that very famous Huntington-based company, not too far from you, Lola, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was where he met John Barnard, who we've talked about on uh, previous programmes on the podcast, who would, latterly, John went on, of course, to design cars for McLaren, Benetton and Ferrari, and also have his own very successful GTO, Guildford Technical Office, set up for many years, where he did independent engineering projects as well. So Patrick really was right there in the thick of it from the very early days. And... As so often happens in motorsport, his meeting with Frank Williams came on the track competing against him, didn't it? And when Frank Williams went to form his own team, that was when Patrick's phone rang. Well, yeah, in fact, Patrick got a bit sort of disillusioned, I think, with with the number of aspects of his early motor racing career and he actually went he's a great sailor he sailed the atlantic and at one stage i don't know if he still owns it but he had a concrete sail, a concrete and reinforced steel sailing boat which was a lovely piece of kit and he got involved in boat design but it was actually frank that lured him back in 1975 because frank had decided that he really wanted his his own team in those early days you know he'd been involved in that rat pack we've talked about before with charlie crichton stewart and Sheridan Finn and a number of other really interesting characters. But in the, I think it was February 1977, Williams Grand Prix Engineering was formed. Uh, Frank took 70% of the equity and Patrick 30. And of course, we talked about this recently with, with the Max Mosley interview. In 77, the team raced a customer march chassis. Uh, but Frank was, um, in those early days, very entrepreneurial and he painted a car in the colours of Saudi Airlines and planted it outside, I think it was in Dorchester in London, and the Crown Prince was staying at the Dorchester and wanted to know why there was a racing car with his name on it and he and Patrick were invited upstairs to chat and uh, that was the start of the famous Saudi Airlines sponsorship of the Williams team uh, and also the Australian driver Alan Jones and the FW06 which was Patrick's first real Williams Grand Prix engineering design um, didn't have a lot of money but the car went on to be very competitive and that was really their first really respectable Formula 1 car It is amazing to think that a team that is so integral to Formula 1 history started with such humble beginnings isn't it but it did start to change throughout the 1980s from that point on success was fairly rapid after that wasn't it it was indeed, and that point you make about those humble beginnings, you know, I was fortunate to go in my early career. I remember visiting Ken Tyrrell down at the Woodyard in Ockham, and you walked into there, and it was a, a series of you know, literally wooden sheds and places. And as you walked around it, you, you couldn't help but think to yourself, "Is three world championship titles have come out of here with Sir Jackie Stewart, you know. And you are right, those early days were humble. But Formula One, as we've talked about a lot, started to change. Formula One became a much more professional sport and with it became much greater demands on the technical teams. And Patrick, as the overall technical director, pulled in some really, really good people. He brought in Frank Durney, another name very well known in motor racing circles. And they started to look at, you know, some fairly revolutionary concepts. The Tyrrell P34, for example, had four small front wheels. Williams built their own version of the six-wheeler, but it actually had four large wheels at the back 
which were driven through two gearboxes. And in the 90s, when I worked for them, we um, we went down the path of the the DAF transmission system, the constantly variable transmission. And uh, we worked very closely with Van Dorn Transmissions at Patrick and uh, Adrian News Insistence at developing what would have been a revolutionary form of gearbox in Formula One. But the first time we tested it and the opposition all heard Williams wanging around Silverstone with no change in the RPM, it was pretty clear we'd stumbled on something and CVT transmission was banned before we even raced it. But <laughs> that never stopped Patrick from being incredibly uh, creative in his designs. And in fact, as you rightfully say, with those changes in the 80s, it really, really brought him to the fore. And he came under immense pressure because, of course, in 1986, Frank had that awful road accident with Peter Windsor in the south of France on his way back to the airport where uh, he trapped his spinal column, which left him severely paralysed. And during his enforced period in hospital and recuperation, really, you know, the team had to be run by somebody. And, of course, that, that forced Patrick to assume control while Frank made his recovery. Um, despite all of that, um, under, you know, his temporary position as really team principal, uh, the team still won the Constructors title in 86. And they won both the championship titles with Nelson Piquet in 87. So pretty remarkable period, the 80s, for Patrick, really. Adrian Newey arrived in the 90s, didn't he? And there was a bit of initial collaboration, which sort of, I get the feeling, turned into eventual uh, friction between the two. Because I think Adrian Newey seemed to be wanting to progress. And, of course, Patrick Head sort of sat there at the top of the of the racing team not really allowing Adrian anywhere else to go within it I wouldn't describe it as, as friction Adrian came across in 1990 uh, having left Leighton House Racing at Bista just down the road from the old March factory and when the guys started to work together at first it was in incredibly fruitful but as with all good people within motorsport as they progress and they have their own ways of doing things and their own successes they really want to forge ahead. And Williams, you know, and, and uh, several people probably wouldn't like me saying this, but it's it's a true personal feeling because I was party to it at the time. Williams was never good with its successional planning. The way the team had been formed was Frank and Patrick, and the way the team was always going to be was Frank and Patrick. And a number of people, myself included, obviously wanted to push further ahead and maybe become full-time directors or maybe even shareholders. And that, that just wasn't possible under the Frank and Patrick regime. And I think Adrian did, well, I know Adrian started to get frustrated by it. And because of the success that he was having and people were recognising the absolute brilliance of his aerodynamic designs and his detailed work that were taking quite a bit of focus within the media, within the Williams team at that time, he was under great demand. And he was being approached, at, I remember having a conversation with him when, he was approached by Ferrari and, you know, was reputedly offered as much money as the leading drivers to go there as a designer. So, yeah, I wouldn't say it was, it wasn't friction, but it was the style and the way that Williams ran and the strength of Frank and Patrick's incredible partnership and trust in each other that um, really prevented Adrian and several other key people from progressing further within the organisation. His career hasn't always been rosy, let's be honest about this. There was a very long, drawn-out court case in the wake of the Etten Senna accident. Um, mm. And Patrick Head came in for a lot of criticism there. And, mm. uh, you know, that was that must have 
been a long process that really took its toll on him, I would have thought. Yeah, I would say it did. I mean, it took it took its toll on a lot of people who were involved in the Formula One paddock at that time, and particularly within the Williams team. A number of us, you know, were, in fact, I think anybody and everybody who worked for the team at that time was under pressure. But equally, uh, Adrian, Frank, Patrick were under the spotlight, you know, in the Italian courts. And of course, irrespective of that tragedy, or both tragedies that weekend with the loss of Roland as well, Formula One was going through those immense periods of change. It put a lot of pressure on the guys. And I think the fact that it really did take an inordinate amount of time and energy working with legal teams and others and institutes and mechanical bodies and all sorts of things and circuits. But I think perhaps at, at the times that pressure was too much and it did it did take the eye off the ball on occasions. But that's an inevitability of that sort of situation, I think. Ultimately, not long after that court case concluded um, with a very difficult to swallow, I imagine, uh, conclusion at the end of it, that it was uh, down to steering column failure that the team, including Patrick Head, was responsible for. I kind of feel like the light was extinguished a little bit. He resigned from Williams, didn't he? And, and sort of took his took himself out of the limelight in many respects. Yes, he did. And I think, you know, there, there were things in his life that started to be more important because, as we all know, life rushes by very quickly. And certainly when you work in top-level motorsport, you're moving from uh, event to event, from race to race, from season to season. And before you know where you are, you know, 20 years have got behind you. And I think, uh, you know, he'd had this enormous run of success from sort of 91 to 97, where Williams won over 50 races and four championships. And I think with all things, you know, you do start to look elsewhere. Um, in I think it was 2004, wasn't it? He moved across to director of engineering and the team appointed Sam Michael as technical director. But after Patrick moved across, Williams' decline continued. Uh he was a remarkable character when you when you were alongside him in the factory. He was he was into everything. Uh, he had no qualms about confronting any challenging issues or people. He was great fun. He would bring a mug of tea, and you know the door would burst open, and that loud voice, "Good Lord, have you got a minute?" You know, and he'd storm in. Didn't matter what you were doing, and he'd sit down and you'd have a chat. But I think that really started to wane in light of some of those things you referred to. And it wasn't until really 2012, of course, that the team started to even be competitive again. It won that one strange race in Spain with Pastor Maldonado. Um, but, but it had lost its sparkle of those early years and also the 80s and the 90s. It just wasn't there anymore. One thing you can definitely say about Patrick Head is that he was a fantastic spotter of talent, wasn't he? Especially in engineers. And when you think of mm. some of those big names, Adrian Newey's, the Ross Brauns, the Paddy Lowe's, they mm. all came through because Patrick had given them the opportunities and had pushed them forward, often to other teams at times, but had pushed them forward in their careers. Well, I'll tell you, if you add a few more to that, Jeff Willis, Enrique Scalabroni, Frank Durney, Neil Oatley, Neil Oatley, a long-standing McLaren man. Neil was uh, at Williams when I first joined in 84. Neil, a remarkable engineer and a very, very understated, quietly spoken man. But if you look in the McLaren history books, you know, Neil, his name is right up there with some of the best cars that the Woking squad have ever produced. And he was. The thing about Patrick was he, he was an engineer's engineer. And I remember Frank once, Patrick came, I was talking to Frank in the office about some commercial issue. Patrick came in and sort of, he, ne he would never say, excuse me, or do you mind? He would just come in and start a conversation. 
And because Frank was such an amazingly passionate, or still is, I imagine, a mad, passionate racer, Patrick just came in and there was a particular thing that the team was working on and he gave Frank a 10-minute download and as Patrick walked out and shut the door, Frank just looked at me with this huge smile on his face and he said, that's why I love that guy so much. He's just such a brilliant engineer. And because of that you know, passion that he had for all things engineering, it rubbed off and when he recognised, in fact, a lot of the people you've just spoken about, Adrian Newey, Neil Oatley, Frank Durney, Paddy Lowe, Jeff Willis, they're actually quite quiet characters and they're the sort of people who would sit down with Patrick at great length and really evaluate the programmes they were working on to the best effect. So yeah, a lot of people in there in the paddock and a lot of people who've done very well out of the sport owe a great deal of uh, debt of gratitude to Patrick. Well, amazing to think he's in his mid-70s already and uh, uh, six, seven years ago he was honoured in the Queen's birthday roll list uh, and given a night bachelor for services to motorsport, so uh, uh, quite rightly deserved. And of course now he's uh, had the top accolade of being in our Hall of Fame. To the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. On this week's podcast, we're telling the story of a very well known brand to some that has had a huge history within motorsport and within historic vehicles that is having something of a revival. And here to tell us all about that revival is Sam from Ridgard Seats. Hiya, Sam. Hi, how are you? Very good, thanks. Uh, you sound like you've been busy because you have basically been relaunching Ridgard Classic Seats, haven't you? So um, let's start by telling the story for those who might not be familiar with Ridgard where the company began and what its history and what its story is. Well, Ridgard Seats was established in the early 1960s by a guy called Bob Ridgard. Uh, he arrived in the UK from South Africa and he was working with various racing teams um, and he built up a vast knowledge of seat design as the cars became faster and due to cornering speeds and general design improvements. So the seats at that time were just a fiberglass shell with a very unsafe mounting. So Bob Ridgard perfected a steel frame design using a full suspension system for the back of the seat and the base of the seat. He designed the first seat to have safety belt locators the first seat to have shoulder support, and also the first seat to have head support, which are all now universally used. He showed off his seats at various international shows, and that was the start of the company. And he went from strength to strength and uh, showed his seats all around the world at various car shows. Um, if it's, if it's a, not a name familiar to you, um, I think if you just look at the history of it and the legacy uh, that Bob had, um, it, it is all very, very impressive. And I'm delighted to be able to uh, take it forward uh, since the sad passing of Bob. 
It seems to be a story, Ridgard, inextricably linked, really, to the progression of safety within motorsport. Because as you mentioned there, you know, he's he's come in from South Africa in the 1960s, it, right in the middle of the era where, frankly, if you went racing, you didn't really know whether you were going to come home or not. Yes, indeed. And he was a racer as well. He was racing MGs. He was racing a Chevrolet Camaro uh, in the early 70s. And safety was was just not a word spoken about at the time. Um, so he had he was very, very passionate. He had a back complaint and he designed his own seat and uh, they've gone from strength to strength. The whole seat is all about full strength, full support, incredible comfort and uh, the, 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 the legacy of it. Well, if you read the old clients list, it's like the Hall of Fame of motorsport, really. Les Leston, Jerry Marshall, uh, Gordon Spice, Andy Rouse, John Dooley, Jimmy McRae, Sterling Moss even had a Ridgard seat wrapped around him uh, for racing. So um, I think that client list is really testament, I suppose, to Bob being a racer himself. As you mentioned there, he was uh, racing a Camaro. And you can only really get that understanding of... Firstly, how a driver needs to feel when they're at the wheel and also what the safety elements are. If you've done it yourself. I've done it myself. Absolutely, Wayne. I started motorsport in 2013 and I had Ridgard seats made by Bob Ridgard in my TR4, my Triumph TR4, which I compete in hill climbs and sprints across the country. Um, at the time, I had a back complaint. Every time I sit in my car and I'm at the red light waiting for it to go green on the track, I have no back pain whatsoever. I will never be without my Ridgard seats in my car. How have you ended up taking control of the Ridgard brand? Bring us up to speed. Okay, so uh, what happened was we uh, have our friends up at uh, TR Enterprises in uh, Nottinghamshire. Um, so we've known them for many, many years um, since we owned a road-going Triumph TR6, which unfortunately was stolen and blown up, and they, that's how we met them. Um, and they had the relationship with Bob Ridgard, um, and uh, they introduced the Ridgard family to us. And uh, Bob's daughters, both Claire and Lucy, um, we met them last year and we had some good, good, meaningful, purposeful uh, discussions for about six months until we signed the paperwork on the 31st of December last year. And this all came off the back of the fact that sadly Bob Ridgard passed away, didn't he, fairly recently um, of cancer and that sort of left the business floating in the air in a way. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, he passed away in July 2019. Um, the daughters were both very, very passionate about continuing the company, but they had other interests and did not have the time. So it was just a perfect time for us to um, to, to work with them and uh, and and acquire the business. Um, Claire Ridgard is is still involved in quality control, so she will check all my seats uh, and make sure that there are to her father's and her own standards as well. 
It must be uh, a real sort of realisation of a dream for you as well, Sam, because, you know, you mentioned there you're a racing driver. You've spent years competing in club motorsport, but now you're able to turn that passion into a job and a business. Yes, exactly. So we're so excited to be uh, continuing the company and taking it over. And, And we've got some great plans for the future And we'd like to, as the doors open up after the pandemic, we'd like to be present at a lot of classic car shows. So the customers, future customers can come and see us, come and talk to us. Uh, It's all about what the customer would like. They're handmade British materials. Um, You can have uh, whatever uh, materials and colors you like because they are handmade and British built. Do you feel a sense of responsibility that you have a brand woven into British motor uh, history? Because, of course, as one of those very famous racing drivers I I mentioned before, uh, they were also used by works teams as well, including British Leyland in so many of those iconic British cars that we love. A great sense of responsibility, not only for that historical legacy, but because there's a family tie there as well to the original Ridgard family. Absolutely, and I think it's key there. It's most important uh, to to carry on that. And yes, I do have a responsibility. I am passionate about it. I, I it is at the forefront of my concern, and uh, um, and you know we will do our utmost to 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 make the seats to exacting standards and uh, and to promote um, our business uh, as much as possible because we are we are so passionate about it talk us through how you make those seats in a moment then but first let's just talk about your own motorsport uh, career sam and uh, what are you doing at the minute where did motor racing start for you how did this all begin how did you get into the driving seat of a racing car oh well that's that's a fun one that one is wayne because my father met my mother in the 1960s at Brands Hatch, and he <laughs> he was doing a track day there, and my mother was a secretary at Brands Hatch, and that's how they met. So the the inherent love of racing and cars was, uh, I, I, you know, I was born into it, <laughs> and um, because of that. Um, uh, my father would change his road car every year because he got bored and um, he he was absolutely determined to take me back to school every other weekend in the car and I couldn't go on the train with the pupils. So uh, that that was always, it was always exciting and fun to be around mum and dad who were so, so very much love their cars all sorts of cars um and with that for my love of uh, and my my love of motorsport um it just to be given the opportunity uh in 2013 to partake in the hill climb and sprint championship uh at the time i thought oh my goodness me i can't do this this is oh this is just not for me and actually, what made it for me on my very first event, which is at Gersten Down near Salisbury, was the people. 
the the people, the community, the 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 companionship and the the love of all classic cars there at that event. Um, so I've never looked back. <laughs> Fantastic, and it's great, you know, because uh, we talk to a lot of blokes who are racing cars, and yeah, there's lots of them out there, but it always seems still special when we get to have a woman on talking about her love for motorsports do you think the appeal (laughs) is widening now well i really do hope so um i think there are you know i would love to say that there are more and more women coming into motorsport um i don't know the figures at the moment myself um but i would really hope you know with with things like this and um advertising and podcasts etc i just hope that the word spreads around really quickly because it's not it's not frightening it's not scary you're you're in control of the car and it's really great fun well we were talking about just this very subject on the episode last week and the question i asked them which i'll ask to you as well was what do you think the barriers are that might prevent especially young women coming into the sport and what do we need to do as a community to break them down i think for young women it's it's probably finances financial uh support that is required or um you know uh, hill climb and sprints are the the cheapest form of motorsport um but i think there might you know it would be really great if we could offer a discount um, to, to, to for for those young women coming into uh, events, you know, and 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 being interested in it, and there's got to be some sort of give and take here to 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 bring more 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 women in. Mm. Well, ultimately, the more diverse we make our sport, the more diverse we make the classic car community, the better the chances are of our survival into the future, given the challenging times we now face, isn't it? You know, we need to have, we need to show that we're all encompassing and, um, you know, the more people we have on board, the better the fight will be. Yes, I agree. When you look at your journey through motorsport, and obviously you've come through the club scene, if someone came to you and asked you, Sam, you know, I I, want to have a go at doing what you're doing, and, and they could be of any age, What's the first and most important thing that perhaps you didn't do right or that you've learnt from that you would pass on to someone coming into motorsport for the first time? I think I would, if I'm doing it all again, I think I would have talked to um, existing competitors um, and, and got a feel for each hill climb or each sprint um, a little better and perhaps got a little bit of tuition in a personal instruction that's probably what i would have done and i guess also not pressuring yourself looking at the first season perhaps in a championship as just sit back learn the tracks just get the Mm -hmm. car to the finish really is often the best way of starting don't try and put the pressure on yourself to start winning races straight away Absolutely. Well, last year was a point there because I only did two events because of the pandemic. And um, this year I've started, um, well, not from at square one, but, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not 
being too competitive with myself on my times because I only did two events last year. So you, you have to you have to just give yourself some slack and say it's okay. You know, we're just going to learn again. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you're a motorsport pro, of course, and you can uh, oh. offer advice to others. But the main advice being, what do you need to look for? in a seat so you know you've built your lovely race car and you obviously now you need to strap yourself into this thing and the seat is the big and natural first point of contact with the car so what do we need to look for when we're buying a seat for our race car well i think you need to look for a seat that is going to give you ultimate strength and support um, and have safety features with it which give exceptional comfort as well. And that is so important. You don't want to be worried about your seat when you're competing or on the road because these seats are, uh, you know, used in competition and on the road as well. So it, that, that, is, that is very key. That is very key. It's an important part of the communication as well, isn't it, between the driver and the car? Well, what we do is we, we, we make a seat frame from welded tubular steel and then we add the back and the base webbing for the support. Um, and then we cover the seat frame in the most wonderful foam which is an orthopedic foam it's a very dense foam and then our trimmers uh, make the seat covers in either vinyl cloth or leather to your specification and fit the seat cover over the, the steel frame with the webbing and the support and the foam as well and with your headrest too and is this this is obviously built to order, so you can customise them in the sort of way you see Formula One drivers doing, I guess, where they almost mould the seat to the actual figure and the frame of the driver. Oh, yes. Yes, you can do. You can do. They need to be, what I keep saying to it, people who are phoning me up about them, is they need to be snug. Um, you know, you need to feel the whole seat. So it may feel a bit snug to begin with but um it, it is it is meant to be like that so i mean that's motorsport seats you also can supply seats for road going cars as well slightly different i guess because you've got to get a bit more comfort dialed in there but it is possible to have a seat that has a sporty feel but with a bit more sort of daily usability isn't it yes absolutely so this year we started production of the RS1 and the RS2 seats, which are classic rally seats. Um, and in a few months' time, we'll also be doing the RS4 seat, which is a taller, wider seat, um, which gives uh, a little bit more room um, and a little bit more comfort. Um, but yes, as you say, we, we are making the RS9, which is the competition seat with the shoulder support and the high back. It's interesting, isn't it? Over the period of classic cars changing and becoming more adapted, I guess, to modern driving, you've seen lap belts turn into full inertia real seat belts as people have wanted to feel 
the sort of safety they feel I guess from their modern car in their classic and few I guess would think about the seat but it's very important from a road car's point of view to to look at them from a safety aspect as well and if you look at some of these bucket seats that we have in the early 50s and 60s cars that sort of finish halfway up your back if you were to get rear-ended it's a potentially serious situation isn't it absolutely that's why we have the the lateral support and not only vertical but we've got the lateral support in the seat um so that if you get shunted in in the side or the rear you've got that support and once you've built the frame and it's uh, covered in your lovely orthopedic foam obviously then it's the finishing and the trimming so what are the options there well you can have um vinyl you can have uh, leather um, you can have cloth, uh, you can have a variety of inserts for the seat in different colours, you can have different coloured piping. Um, me, for example, I've just redone the covers on my seat and I've chosen black leather with a red Alcantara suede in the inserts of the seat. So they really do stand out, you know, with red piping So and with the red carpets and the car is red. Um, so it's really going to stand out, you know. Fantastic. But you can have all, all manners of materials. There are hundreds and hundreds of different materials you can have for the, for the seats. <laughs> Brilliant. And this is the thing, isn't it? It's really a a great way of personalizing customizing your car as well and stamping your own personality on it i guess absolutely and they all have the Ridguard logo on them and uh you can't mistake them <laughs> and all made and constructed by craftsmen and women in the uk which is a very important point to note absolutely that's that's important because uh we we it, that's what Bob was doing and that's what we will carry on doing as well these sort of crafts based artisan businesses you know it's what we do well in the UK and especially in the historic vehicle community um, what are the challenges of running a small very bespoke business and, and looking at the classic car scene in general you know what do you see the future being like and, and are you positive about the future for a small business such as yourselves i am positive because i'm so passionate about it um i i i love it to bits um i i i would i would happily talk to you and uh try and sell you some seats right now if i could um i just uh, you know i'm updating the website i'm i'm getting out there i'm spreading the word as much as i can I, I just think the future is bright. The future is bright because I'm running the business and I'm, I'm so keen and enthusiastic and very driven. <laughs> Excuse the pun. <laughs> and I guess part of it is that you have control over your production process. So you also have the ability to bring new talent into the business, train people up, bring in young apprentices and make sure that those skills and crafts are kept and passed down through generations. And that is definitely on my list yeah. to do. Brilliant. Well, it's a fantastic story of a brand that started way back in the 1960s, has developed safety in motorsport, just as motorsport itself 
has had to become a safer way of uh, enjoying racetracks at the weekend. And uh, a great testament, I think, to the legacy, really, that Bob Rigard leaves us with, that, Sam, you've taken it on as a motor racing uh, driver, as a passionate uh, member of the motorsport community. And uh, it's great to see such a brilliant British brand continuing on to the future. So thanks for telling us about it. Where can we find out more now that everyone's sold on these seats and wants a pair? Where can we find out more to order them? Yes, certainly. So my website is www.ridgardseats.co.uk and you'll find all my contact details on there. And we'll put a link to that in the description part of the podcast page, of course. You can click on that and go and find out more about Ridgard Seats. So Sam Brown from Ridgard Seats, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. Following on from last week's podcast, um, we obviously tested both cars up at Castle Coombe and it was a relatively pain-free day. So really, we just wanted to um, basically inspect the vehicles after Coombe just to make sure there was no faults that we're aware of. And the good news is with both cars, um, we, we have had to do very little work, to be honest, ready for Coombe. So um, I mentioned we had a very small oil leak on my cam cover. Um, that is the only physical job we've had to carry out on mine to rectify anything. So we just put a new gasket on there. We didn't want to risk any further issues with that. Um, it's not nice getting a smell of oil in the car. And if it was to get worse, it's we don't want leaking any fluids at all so other than that we've just really been carrying out sort of basic maintenance that we would do um, that I quite often talk about on the podcast so we've been just um, changing the engine oil brake fluid um, gearbox and and also the differential oil that's all we've had to do on both cars that's something we do regularly um, just for the sake of the cost of uh, the oil just to make sure everything's okay there often um, when you drain oil there's a good sign if there is any potential wear on any of those items in the oil when you drain it so this is something that we keep on top of pretty regularly but the good news is with both cars really um, as I said Matthew's not in his XJR6 we're still carrying out the recommissioning work on that after the fire um, but he is using the XJ40 so both cars have been absolutely fine that is a class A car the XJ40 and uh, mine's the, the the class d so with the class d cars they do tend to take a little bit more uh, maintenance than the standard cars as i'm sure you're aware um but other than that on mine it's been really really basic we've just kind of just done preventative maintenance so we've taken the pads out greased them make sure they're okay um as i said at coom we scrubbed some tires so we've swapped those on the cars We've rechecked the geometry as well, just to make sure that's absolutely okay. And we've obviously kept the same setup that we dialed in on the test day. So, um, like I said, it's been it's been fairly straightforward with the maintenance on this one. Um, Coombe, as I said, is my local circuit, so I'm I'm really looking forward it to um, to it actually. And uh, as I said, it, it's an awkward circuit to race at, um, so it's going to be really interesting. Um, the weather looks as if it's changeable. Um, it's a possibility that we might get rain for one of the races but as we all know at most circuits the weather changes so frequently so um, we just don't know we've obviously going to go with the drive setup um, as it stands and then we can always change over to wet it as we need so it's actually a, a classic um, and race retro weekend so it looks like there's a whole combination of cars racing and i think they are allowing spectators as well which should be good to see some people on the uh, on the sidelines again um, 
So we're qualifying on Saturday, um, which is in the middle of day, strangely, and then we're not racing until the Sunday. So we're going to head up tomorrow morning, um, and then we're going to obviously do the final checks at the circuit, ready for the qualifier. And then we're obviously got the rest of the day to, to watch some of the racing. Hopefully we don't have to sort any issues with my car, but we can obviously... Uh, uh, we've got plenty of time if we do need to um, and then yeah we've got the two races on Sunday so um, it will change really if um, depending on how the weather is um, if we're going to get a wet race hopefully it's not in a limbo situation where it's hard to decide whether we go for a wet or a dry setup um, fingers crossed it's one or the other if that makes sense but yeah really really excited and uh, I think we're as prepared as we can be um, but uh, as you know with racing anything can happen so fingers crossed we get a good result this weekend and uh, I'll uh, record some more podcasts over the weekend and next week we'll update you with how me and Matthew did in the races that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.